Welcome to Storehouse Dallas. Amen. Thank you, Tracy Eckert. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Okay, thank you. <laughs> glad you're here. Glad you're awake. Glad we're all uh, here to get into the Word of God. I want to welcome everyone on our uh, online viewing as well. Um, well, as Tracy mentioned, we're continuing our summer series in the book of Romans. And so we're in part two this week. If you didn't get to tune in last week, I highly encourage you to, um, to do so. We covered chapters one through three, and today we're going to be in chapters four and five. So um, I'm going to pull Romans 1, verse 16 and 17 up here on the screen, because this, these two verses, um, I believe, encapsulate the, the heart of what this book is about all throughout. So we don't want to forget it. So we're going to keep reminding, I'm going to keep reminding you of it. Romans 1, verse 16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, For in it, in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. So we see here that the gospel does two things. First of all, it releases the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. Secondly, it reveals the righteousness of God. So we're going to continue those themes. Last week, we discussed how all Jews and Gentiles are both guilty of sin, deserving of condemnation, and in need of salvation. And also, because of that, all Jews and Gentiles are made righteous, they're saved, they receive the righteousness of God, not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So, I want to mention a couple of things about last week as well. Um, I, I really hit head-on on homosexuality. Um, Romans 1 just is, doesn't pull any punches when it's talking about that. Um, it defines it as, as, as being against nature. And so I addressed that. I talked about my own testimony related to that, so please check that out. Um, but, but I also mentioned a number of other besetting sins in, that Romans 1 addresses. And so some of us may have heard that and say, okay, Matthew, I hear what you're saying. This is bad, but what if I am, or what if a friend of mine is caught up in any one of these sins, any type of sexual sin, addiction, greed, um, um, envy, slander, gossip, any of these things? What if we're caught up in this? We want to get out, but we don't know the practical tools. Well, I have good news for you. This whole book of Romans outlines step-by-step, truth-by-truth, action-by-action on how to overcome sin. Okay, because Romans 1 is not just to say homosexuality, greed, envy, strife, sexual addiction, those things are bad. The heart of Romans 1 is to address those things and then through the rest of the book to give you the practical keys to overcome sin. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. And it reveals the righteousness of God. So the gospel doesn't just get us to heaven and leave us in our mess. The free gift of righteousness empowers us to reign in life through this man, Jesus Christ. Amen? So today, 
That's where we're going to pick up. I'm going to continue to lay some foundational truths about the gospel, about this good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. So these are the major themes I'll cover today. First of all, righteousness, right standing with God, is a free gift. It is not earned by our good works. Secondly, righteousness fully restores our relationship with God. And lastly, righteousness frees us from condemnation and empowers us to reign in life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that as I declare this good news, that the power of God for salvation would be released to every heart that you would reveal your righteousness to us. You would unveil the glory and majesty of your son, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first point. The righteousness, right standing from God, is a free gift. It comes by faith. It's not earned by works. And so in Romans chapter 4, Paul is unpacking this reality by uh, discussing a very well-known Old Testament figure, Father Abraham. And so if you'll remember with this whole book that Paul is addressing a church in Rome that is composed of both Jewish and Gentile believers. And he's addressing, he's answering some questions. Is circumcision and the observance of the law of Moses necessary for salvation for Jew or Gentile? Do Gentiles need to be circumcised and observe the law of Moses to be saved? Does righteousness, does right standing come through the works of the law? And what does Paul say? No. Righteousness, right standing with God, comes by faith in Jesus Christ for both Jew and Gentile. It is by grace it is not earned. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, so, so why is this important? Why is Paul spending all this energy in the book of Romans to unpack the law, circumcision, works, faith, all these things? His main concern here is to say that righteousness, this free gift of right standing with God, it's by grace. It's not earned at all. Because if it's in any way earned, if our works earn us, righteousness or salvation, then we can boast and say, God, I deserve this. But if it's a free gift, if it comes by grace, then it's 100% unearned, undeserved, but freely given from God's overflowing heart of love. All Jews and Gentiles have fallen short, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All need this free gift of salvation. So, righteousness earned through the works of the law, a mentality that says, yes, my righteousness is earned by works of the law, says, um, God, I've, I've deserved this. I've earned it. I've obeyed you enough. I've been in church long enough. I've done the Christian things long enough. I've done the Ten Commandments enough, and I have deserved your righteousness, God. And this works-based righteousness focuses on what I have done and not what God has done. 
But a grace-based righteousness, a, a righteousness through faith says, God, here's what you have done for me. I have not earned it. I have not deserved it. And it produces this righteousness by faith. The reason it's important is it produces gratitude. It produces thanksgiving. It says, God, you're good. Your mercy is new every morning. Come and shower that mercy and that grace on me again today. Amen. So how did Abraham, Paul asks, how did Abraham, the father of our faith, how did he attain righteousness? Did he attain it by getting circumcised? Did he attain it? Because he kept the law to a certain degree? No. He believed. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So let's talk about Abraham for a little bit. Um, So Abraham was promised descendants, as many as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. And he was promised land. Your descendants are going to inherit this land. And so three times in the book of Genesis, God comes with this promise to Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. And there's actually a 24-year span of time amongst those chapters. It's pretty incredible. Um, But in Genesis 15... God comes to Abraham a second time with a promise. And that promise is that this heir, this this descendant of yours that's going to multiply your descendants across the earth, it's going to come from your own body. See, because Abraham, if we remember, by by Genesis 15, Abraham is 85 years old. And so he's getting a promise from a son, from his own body. The promise of a son from his own body. And I mean, I think Abraham's looking there. He's like, God, I'm 85. My wife, not much younger. But what did he do? He believed. The promise was heard. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was freely given. You know what's interesting as you read through this passage of Genesis is that Abraham eventually did get circumcised in Genesis 17. But between Genesis 15, where he believed God, he believed the promise of God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, so righteousness was already given, it was 14 years later before he was circumcised. That there is evidence that this righteousness of God did not come as a result of circumcision or of doing good enough or keeping the works of the law. It came by his faith. It came by his agreement with God. It came because he said, yes, God, your word is true. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I say yes. And we've got to agree with the word of God. See, because Abraham, he even got it wrong on how the promise was going to be fulfilled. He believed God. Yes, God, you're going to bring an heir through my own body. But he goes home and he tells his wife. She's like, well, it's not coming out of my body. Hagar, come here. He bears a son (laughs) through Hagar, and 14 years later, God says, nope, it's 
coming through Sarah. And he had to agree with God again. You know, sometimes God gives us a promise and we say yes, but then he fulfills it in a way different than what we imagined. Because it's so common for us to look with our eyes and to listen with our ears, but not to say, God, how are you going to do this? (laughs) And not to get on board with his plan. But see, Abraham, even in, in, his, in his weakness to know exactly how it was going to happen, God was patient, God was merciful, continued to visit him. But each time God came to Abraham, Abraham said, yes, amen. God, I don't see it with my eyes, but I'm believing you because I've heard with my ears. And that's faith. So, let's talk about faith. Romans 4. Verse 18 through 21. Because this is really important. If the right standing with God comes through faith, I think it would be pretty important for us to know what faith is. Amen? So Romans 4, verse 18 to 21 says this. In hope against hope, he, that's Abraham, he believed. There it is again. So that he might become a father of many nations according to that which was spoken. So shall your descendants be. Pause. Here we go. Hope against hope. Abraham is looking at a hopeless situation. I'm an old guy. My wife is not much, much younger. But in hope, I'm, believe, I'm agreeing with the promise of God. So I'm maintaining hope even in the midst of a hopeless situation. And I believe, even though I don't see, I believe what was spoken by the Lord. That I might become what he said, the father of many nations. We believe, we agree with God. We keep hope in the midst of a hopeless circumstance. We focus not on what we see with our eyes, but on what God has said. And we start to become the very thing God said that we are. Verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. All right, so Abraham, he's again, he's looking at the situation. He's seeing what he sees with his physical eyes, but he says, no, God said this. The promise of God is that I would be the father of many nations, that this son would come from my body and from Sarah's body. So I am going to be in agreement with what God has said. What is faith? He was fully assured. He was fully convinced. Holy Spirit comes and he brings, he convinces us 
of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And he is coming in this room today to convince our hearts that God is who he says he is, and he is able to do what he promised. So, fully assured, fully convinced. So the promise comes, and assurance follows. God speaks, I say yes, and I hold on to that. I don't waver in unbelief. I don't let what I'm seeing with my eyes determine what I'm believing. Friends, this is just absolutely important. And that's why I'm taking some time and letting the Holy Spirit just sink this deep into your hearts. Because our eyes, they, they lie to us. <laughs> our feelings lie to us. But the Word of God... It brings our hearts in alignment with the truth. And when we are fully assured, when we are fully convinced, what are we convinced of? We are convinced, we are assured that what God had promised, that what God said, he is able to perform. God said he's going to make me a father of many nations. He is able to perform it no matter what I see with my eyes. And I keep saying, yes, that is faith. That is faith. That is agreement with the word of God. It is fully, full assurance that what God has promised, he is also able to perform. Amen? So, what if I'm not fully convinced? How do I get fully convinced? Well, faith, being fully assured or fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised, comes by hearing, hearing Romans 10. We hear the word of God and we keep hearing, we keep listening, we keep agreeing, we keep saying yes, and our minds and our hearts become fully convinced. So, but what here, I mean, I'm talking about faith in general, but Paul's talking about something a little more specific here in terms of who Jesus is and salvation. And this is absolutely important here because the church, many of us in the church walk around with this orphan spirit that we don't really know our standing with God the Father. We're not fully assured that we are truly in Christ, that we are truly righteous and truly saved. And that's what Paul's talking about here. What is the object of faith? See, Abraham's faith was not simply believing the promise, though it was. He believed what God said, but he believed God. That's what it says. It says that he, with respect to the promise of God, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. So his faith was about God, that what God says is true and that God is able to do what he says. God is the object of our faith. It says in Romans chapter 4, verse 22, Therefore it was also credited to Abraham as righteousness, now not for his sake only, but it was written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited. As those who, here we go, believe in him, God, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So what is Paul talking about in this context? It applies across the board, but full assurance in this context is the God that raised Jesus from the dead, that he came up out of that grave, 
that God didn't leave him, his body to decay, but he raised him up. And what are we, what, what are we, we're believing in that God, that God raised him up, that God delivered him over for our sins to be taken care of at the cross, and he raised him up so that we might be made righteous. And so as surely as Jesus has been raised from the dead, just as surely have you and I been made the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ because we believe. Romans 4, 5 says that we believe in the one who justifies or makes righteous the ungodly. Point number two. This righteousness... So when God makes us righteous, when we're ungodly, this righteousness fully restores our relationship with God. 100%. This is really good news. And um, the reason why this is important is because this means we can enjoy relationship with God. We can enjoy friendship with God. We can draw near to God with boldness and confidence. That we don't have to wonder, is this God going to strike me as I come near? Is God going to count my sins and lay them bare before me when I come near to him and accuse me? No, he's not. Now, if you're here on Thursday night, um, um, Tracy was preaching on Zechariah 3 and Zechariah 4, where Joshua the high priest is brought before the throne of God. And this, this um, host of angels is surrounding him and they put clean garments on him and God is there accepting him. But who's the one accusing him? Satan, <laughs> bad guy, <laughs> accuser, adversary, devil. <laughs> he is the one that accuses. And I tell you, we stand right in the presence of God. We start hearing the voice of accusation and we think it's God. <laughs> But I tell you, if you like look over to the left, it's, it's the big bad guy, Satan. He's the one accusing. God is the one not counting our sins against us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But he's reconciling us to him. God is reconciling himself to us in Jesus Christ. That is really, really good news because it gives us confidence to enter into his presence. Let's look at Romans 5, 1 to 2. There's a couple of things that are important about why we can come with confidence, how that relationship is restored. So Romans 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace, 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 peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. So we've been justified or made righteous by faith and we've been, we have peace with God. That when we come in through faith in Jesus Christ, who's our advocate, who's our intercessor, who's the one that paid for our sins, that we can come before God boldly and say, God, my Father loves me and he wants me here. And he's enjoying me being here in front of him. That's peace with God. 
We've been made righteous by his blood. And he has cleansed us from all of our sins. Praise God. So we have peace with God. That's why we can come boldly. But also, Romans says that we have been saved from his wrath. Let's look at Romans 5, verse 9 through 10. Romans 5, verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, made righteous by the blood of Christ, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, say much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So what's this saying? We've been made righteous by the blood of Christ, that through his death, we've been reconciled. While we were enemies, like while you just came out of the pig pen, you just came into church. You're just, you just came into relationship with God. You just got on your knees and said, Jesus, this life is yours. And he justifies you. He makes you righteous. He cleanses you by his blood. And you have peace with God. And you are saved. You you will be saved from his wrath, from his anger. This is really good news. Did you know that it's really difficult to enjoy a relationship with someone who's angry with you? Have you ever sat down at the dinner table and you just know someone is just ticked off at you? Or maybe the other way around. You're just like, man, this person really has ticked me off. It's really hard to enjoy dinner with that person. You know, it's also really difficult to enjoy relationship with someone that you think is ticked off at you. That you think is accusing you. You know, you come into the room and you're just like, they know what I did. Are they going to yell at me? Are they going to are they going to cuss me out today? Or can I can I ask them a question? If I ask them this question, are they going to yell at me? And you're just like walking on these eggshells around this person. And you know, I've I've had to, I get that feeling sometimes. You know, you've had a you've had a, a bad interaction with someone, or you offended them, or they or they offended you, and 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 maybe you've even dealt with it, but you still go around them and you feel that eh, you're like you're walking on eggshells. And sometimes what I do in a relationship, I just clear the air. I'm like, are we okay? Is your heart okay? Like, is my heart okay? <laughs> you know, <laughs> are you mad at me? <laughs> you know, and we clear the air, and then it's just like when you find out, no, I'm not even thinking about that thing you said or did, and you're just like. Ah, okay, I can enjoy the relationship now. And that's the kind of confidence we can have when we come before the Lord. Because if, if, if thinking or knowing that someone's angry at you inhibits the relationship, on the opposite side, knowing that they love you and delight in you and enjoy your presence, I mean, you just like, you love being around those people. They come up and they're like, Matthew, you're so amazing. I love being around you. And they pick you up and they hug you and they're smiling at you. And you're just like, you really like me this much? <laughs> and, they, and then you start to believe it. And you're just like, I want to be around this person. They make me feel so loved. They make me feel so wanted. And that's how it is with God. 
And it's not just because God's a big teddy bear. I mean, God's kind and God's loving and he is a big teddy bear, but it's not just because of that. It's because he's taken care of your sins. He has washed them and cleansed them by the blood of his son. He has made you righteous. Something legal in heaven has happened where the angels have come. They've removed those filthy garments and they've clothed you with the righteousness of Christ. And you stand before God and he looks at the accuser pointing out your sins. And he says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. This one has been plucked like a brand from the fire. And I will remove their sins and transgressions in one day. And because we have been reconciled, because our friendship with God has been fully restored, we know that we will be saved from his wrath, from his anger. Amen? Okay. Now, I want to take us through a parable that we're familiar with here. And it connects directly here with Romans, and I hope to show that. It's uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, And I think that this parable just is one of the best, I'd say the best illustration we have in the Bible of the difference between someone in a works-based righteousness mentality and someone in a grace-based free gift righteousness mentality. Okay, so um, Luke 15, the reason Jesus even gives this parable is that he's, he's talking, he's talking about the kingdom, which he was did a lot, um, but he's drawing in tax collectors and sinners. He's drawing in some questionable, pe- questionable people. And I think what's interesting about this passage is that he came to them. I mean, Jesus wasn't going in the bars and the clubs and engaging in the sinful activity. He was speaking on the streets. He was healing the sick. He was, he was out in public, but he wasn't engaging in their sinful activity. And that's really important. But there was something about his words. I'm about to knock this thing into Rob's forehead. So I'm going to move this right here. (laughs) Not on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) God bless our fire sprinklers. Lord, bring them all in, Lord. (laughs) Um, He was talking, and they were drawn to him, and they came and listened. And the Pharisees, they see this happening. They look around. They're like, Jesus is eating with these tax collectors and sinners. And here's here's what they said, that he said um, that that this man receives sinners, and he eats with them. He accepted them, and he fellowshiped with them. And it made them angry. So, as we remember from the story of the prodigal son, um, the father has two sons. One wants his inheritance, squanders it on prostitutes and prodigal living, gambling, you know, just wasting all of his money, maybe involved in drugs. You don't know what, it, we don't know what it is. It's, it's bad stuff that he's doing. His whole inheritance, and he finds himself finally eating with the pigs before he realizes I don't have to live this way anymore. So let's look at Luke 15. We're familiar with it, but I want to highlight some things that are very important to this righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So Romans 15, verse 17. 
We're going to read a, a bit of it here. Again, I want to highlight some really key words that tie us right back into Romans. Luke 15, 17. It says, when this prodigal son came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men, very important phrase, have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. Verse 18, I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Okay. Oh, I may have hit mute. I'm going to hold it like this just to be safe. Okay. Back to Luke 15. Back in the zone. Verse 19. Uh, let's go back to 18. Uh, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Remember that phrase. So he got up, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. There's that phrase again. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine, very important, this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. There's celebration in the Father's house. God's house is a house of happy celebration. We get to rejoice. We get to praise God. We get to enjoy fellowship with the angels and saints. But a few things that are important from this passage that we're familiar with. That the son, the, the, that he was in the pig pen, he goes back saying, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. God, make me, Father, make me as one of your hired workers. And so he was ready to go up, go and live in a slave mentality in his father's house. Because even the slaves had more than enough. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's saying a lot about the abundance and the extravagant heart of provision and of love in the heart of the father. That even his slaves, even the angels, enjoy more than enough. But what he finds there is he finds a father that, that embraces him, that kisses him, that clothes him with that robe of righteousness that restores him to sonship. Okay, so he didn't put him back as a hired worker. He put him right in the status of a son immediately. The righteousness of God by faith came immediately. He didn't have to work to get up to it. And I mean, this is just so huge because a lot of us Christians and, and people in the church that were in the church, were in the Father's house and their celebration, but we, because of this sense of unworthiness, God, I'm unworthy to be called your son or your daughter because of what I've done, of guilt, of shame, of condemnation. You know you've hurt God's heart. You come into the house, and, but you still live as a hired worker. 
You still live as a slave. You still live as one that doesn't have direct access to your relationship with the Father. I'm not good enough for God. I'll do the Christian thing. I'll stay in the Father's house. But this, I just, I'm just, I'm unworthy to be called a son. And that's not God's heart. That's not God's heart. God freely justifies the ungodly by faith. He makes us righteous. We come in, he embraces us, he clothes us, he robes us, and he enjoys the relationship with us immediately when we return. Amen? So there's another guy in this story, the older brother, because he sees his younger brother made righteous by grace as a free gift, didn't do anything to earn it, clothed in sonship, the ring on his hand, the fattened calf is killed, and his brother gets jealous. Let's look at it. Verse 28. But he, the older brother, became angry and was not willing to go in. Key phrase. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, there it is again, son, son, son. Even this angry older brother is a or younger brother is a son. Older brother. You have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. We had to celebrate and rejoice. So, so he's, he's um, this, this older brother, he, because of his anger, he didn't go in. He didn't go into the celebration. He didn't enter into the father's house. He didn't enter into the presence of God in worship. He didn't enter into a life of blessing, of love, of prosperity, of promise. He was angry. And, you know, some of us get angry when we look at other Christians that seem less mature or less experienced, and they've, they've just, like, gotten saved, or they've been in the church for a year, and they, they're coming up on the microphone. They're like, I healed three people yesterday in the marketplace. And, and you, see, you hear that, and, 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 and then they come up the next week, God just paid off my debt, or God just broke through financially, and I got a promotion in my job. And I, just, and I got encountered, and I was on the ground just crying for an hour after church the other day, after Matthew's amazing message. <laughs> I know that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to believe. <laughs> and so we hear that and we're sitting in our chair and we just look at this person. You're just like, man, that's awesome. <laughs> I've been at this church for 10 years. I've cried maybe twice. I've had this job that I really hate for about five years. And I'm struggling to make it. And I've been serving. I've been an usher. I've been on altar team. I've been back with kids. 
You know, you're really holy if you serve back in the kids' area. <laughs> Not because they're, they're bad, but because it's like something. The enemy, he doesn't want the next generation equipped. And so something keeps God's people from getting back there. But they're really doing amazing things in the kids' ministry. Anyway, get back there. <laughs> so... <laughs> I've been here. I've sowed my seed. I've come up for healing. I stand right in front during worship. God, I've done all these things. I haven't slept with anybody. That guy was sleeping with someone last month and he just got saved. And now he's like rich and famous and encountering God. <laughs> with the church's money, they gave him a gift. <laughs> and then. He's supposed to pay his rent, and he went and did this with it. God, I've done this. I've obeyed your commands. I've served in the church, but you haven't given me fill in the blank. You haven't given me my breakthrough. You haven't given me my healing. You haven't given me my encounter. I haven't been up to the third heaven. I haven't, like smelled an angel past me in worship. <laughs> and we get angry and we don't enter in. We don't celebrate with that person, and we don't enter in ourselves. And see, one of the best ways you can actually start entering into that breakthrough that that new guy, you know, is entering into is you celebrate him. Man, that's awesome. He's alive. God, he was dead, and now he's serving you. He's in your house, and you're showing him your goodness. Give him more, 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 more. And you cry out for more for the guy with breakthrough, for the guy with breakthrough. And you enter in, and you're like, God, I know you do it for them, and it's by grace, and so I know I don't have to earn it either. I can come in, and I can celebrate with them, and then I can get encountered. But if you continue to push back in anger and jealousy and say, I've done this, I've done that, but God, you haven't given me fill in the blank. You're in a works-based righteousness mentality because that same favor is available to you. And I don't know why some things take longer sometimes than others. There's a lot going on in the heart and mind of God, but that's why we come in and we say, God, here I am. I'm celebrating this person. I'm believing what you said is promised, even though I don't see it with my eyes, and I'm going to access your heart, your blessing, and your power in my life because you've freely given it. Okay, so, and what's interesting here is that the prodigal son, the moment he returns, the mo even before, even when he's thinking about returning, the first words out of his mouth, Father. He knew he could go back and have a relationship with his father. He knew he could call God Father, even though he felt unworthy. This angry older brother never calls him Father.
We stay in the field doing the work of the kingdom as a hired hand. And we never enter into the home of his love, his blessing, his provision, his authority, his heart, his righteousness. But the father says, son, you've always been with me. All that is mine is yours. You have access to this too. You don't have to be jealous. Come and celebrate with us. Come and enter in. Come, come, come. And that, how do we do that? We celebrate that person, but then in our hearts, we even in our disappointment, we come into God. We come into his presence in our, by, with our hearts by faith. We don't have to distance ourselves from him. We have peace with God. We are saved from wrath, and we can enjoy our relationship with him. Last point. Righteousness frees us from condemnation and empowers us to reign in life. Romans 5, 17 through 21. Romans 5, 17 says this. I'm in Revelation 5. Great chapter 2. Romans 5, 17. Because the righteousness, it frees us from condemnation. And verse 17 will really hit on this. For if by the transgression of the one, it's talking about Adam and Adam's sin in the garden, that because of that one transgression, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification, righteousness of life to all men. As through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, Adam's sin resulted in many being made sinners. Christ's sinless life resulted, his righteousness resulted in many being made righteous, all who would believe. Adam's transgression led to condemnation. It led to punishment. It led to wrath. But Christ's obedience resulted in righteousness for all who believe, right standing with God through what Jesus did. And finally, Adam's disobedience made us all sinners, but Christ's obedience, his perfect obedience, put us in right relationship with God. We're freed of guilt, we're freed of shame, we're freed of condemnation, and we can come boldly into the throne of grace. And so even if sin seems to be increasing, even though we hear the message, even though we read the Bible, we, we, and sin is dominating our lives, that much more grace can be poured out to empower you to reign in life. Because remember, he's not leaving you. He's not leaving the prodigal son in that state. He's enriching him with love, with righteousness, with kindness, and empowering him to live in freedom from those destructive lifestyles. That is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. We reign in life through the free gift.
of righteousness. Amen.